0: Lord, we do want to worship You this morning, and we want to give You the praise, and I just ask that as we look into Your Word this morning, our heart's desire would be to see the joy that You can give us, and the joy that we can have from worshiping You and giving everything that we have to You. We give You the honor and the glory and the praise, for it's in Christ's name, amen. This morning we are continuing our study in the book of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 2, and uh, it's interesting that... uh, since we're doing Matthew, and we're kind of going through this systematically, that so next week is Epiphany, if you're liturgical, and, and they're going to be studying the same passage that we're looking at as the wise men traditionally, the Magi, come to visit Jesus. Um, and then, of course, this week, we're actually going to look at what they're studying this week. Next week, because for some reason in the liturgical calendar, it flips around. I just find that interesting. It doesn't mean anything to our study today, but... I thought it was fascinating. Um, and maybe it does, because historically, there's, this is one of those passages that there's like all sorts of interesting um, tidbits that you can find out about the wise men or about the magi. So uh, as we start this morning, let's go ahead and read the story that I'm sure is really familiar to all of you. In Matthew chapter 2, we'll start at verse 1 and we'll go through verse 12. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king... are by no man means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Let's pray. Lord, I just ask that as we look in your word today, that these words would be yours and not mine, that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and our minds to what you would have us to see in this story that most of us know so well. Lord, may we have appreciate new and afresh what it truly means to worship you and how we can come before you with the same spirit as these magi had thousands of years ago. We give you the honor and the glory and the praise in Christ's name. Amen. So, we all know the story. The, uh, the, the wise men traditionally, the magi here, they come and they're, they're seeking, they see the star and they're coming and they're looking for Jesus. And they come and they find Jesus in a house and they worship him and they bring him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But is there more to it than just that? Is it more than just something we set up at our nativity scene and we have them, if you're like me and you, you cared about really precise things, once I realized when I was in elementary school that, wait a minute, there, he was in a house, he wasn't in the manger anymore, so I made my mom, like, put the, the wise men, like, way over here because they were still on their way and Jesus was in a house, so I couldn't have them all there at the same place. So that was a big deal to me when I was, like, 10. Now it's like, whatever. It looks cool. So, Um, So what what is the point of this story? Because it's interesting here that between the two accounts in Matthew and Luke of Jesus' birth, Matthew is the only one that focuses on the wise men, the magi, coming to visit Jesus. Luke doesn't begin the story that way. Luke begins the story with a brilliant appearing of angels to shepherds who then come and visit Jesus right after he's born while he's still in a manger, and they're the first ones to worship him, while Matthew, for some reason, wants to tell us that these wise men from this far country come to worship Jesus. And I think there's a, there is a definite reason to why he's doing this. Now, who, were, who are the people in this story? The first people we're introduced to, it says in verse 1 and 2, it says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, uh, the Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, "Where is he who has been born a King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him." Now, the first person we see is Herod. Herod is the the king over all of of, of the area, and um, and and he's the king of if you if they they were all under Rome, but he was like the little sub ruler of all of the Israelites, all of that area of Judea. So um, Herod is actually, in, in many ways, he was a very powerful ruler. He was actually in the uppermost levels of leadership. He could talk directly to the, uh, to the uh, Roman emperor at the time. He, he wasn't well-liked by the Roman emperor um, but between various things that he had done, um, but he had been appointed, basically, to be king over this area. He was half Jewish, and he was half um, Edomian. He, he uh, and if you could forward it one slide to the map here, just so we can kind of see what areas we're talking about. Um, So, I don't know if you can actually see it, but, so, Idumea is down here uh, below, it's at the, there it is, it's the bottom area below Judea, well, so he was part of that area and he was also part Jewish, so he would not have traditionally been allowed to really be the king, but obviously they were under Roman rule, and he was appointed to be the king by the Roman emperor. Um, he He actually did a lot of great things for the area the, in many ways, the people liked him for certain things. He was well known for re, do, doing something that all the Jews appreciated He, he restored the the temple he uh, rebuilt it at that time they were worshiping in what that was known as herod 's temple and that and because it had fallen into kind of disrepair after Ezra and Nehemiah had rebuilt the temple so he he did a lot of great things when it came to public works project. Now, the problem was the way he funded those projects was he made a lot of enemies because the tax rate was ridiculously high. So he he levied very heavy taxes on people. And as he got older and older, near the end of his life, and, and it's what we see in this passage, he became very... Um, he became very scared that someone was going to take over his throne. So he did things like put to, get, put to death people in his own family to keep them from being able to take over his throne. You'll see here where when he feels threatened, we're going to look at next week, he kills every every child, every baby boy under two years old just because he thinks that there's a king born that's going to try to take over his throne. So he's, he's a very wicked man. He's a very powerful man. And in many way, in some respects, he's liked, but at the same time, there, there's 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 a dislike of him because he doesn't he's not really Jewish, and he he also um, he levies these heavy taxes, and people live in fear of him because if you go against him, you're probably going to end up dead. So so that's who we're dealing with when when we're dealing with Herod. Um, so he's the king at this time, and and so the and so you have to imagine that type of person. Now, who who are these wise men? Who are these magi, as the New American Standard calls them? And and that is the correct term. The the reason they were called we'll look at the reason why they were called wise men later. But the the magi were most likely Persian astronomers um, uh, or astrologers. They kind of crossed over at that time. Historically, the term was used basically talking about kind of magicians, but as it progressed, it basically just meant someone who kind of studied the stars. They did kind of practice some astrology. So, uh, some of it carried over into actual scientific astronomy, but they could tell you what had changed in the sky. They followed all those things. They knew when the comets were going to appear. They, they, I mean, the ancient civilizations knew a lot more than we give them credit for sometimes. And the more that we find out about those civilizations, we find out that they were very smart. And these guys were part of that. They traditionally were centered in in Persia, which is modern-day Iran. And so on the map, if you if you want to sh- show that again, that's I put two maps up there. And um, the reason is because understand where they were coming from. So over here in this area is modern-day Iran. There's Afghanistan. There's Iraq. And basically all of Persia was like half of Iraq over here with the Tigris and Euphrates River, and then um, all of Iran right there, and then of course, here's Jerusalem and and Judea right over here. So they traveled all that distance just to find this baby that from their studies somehow, and we're not we're not told exactly how, but somehow through their studies, they knew that there was supposed to be a Jewish Messiah a Jewish king because every it, it, every interpreter of the Hebrew scripture at that time said there's a messiah coming there's a king coming and 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 their studies led them to believe that this star that appeared was marking the place where the messiah the king was supposed to be born so, so but you have to put yourself in their place they march into a country that they're probably not familiar with. Rome, uh, Iran, Persia at the time, is like a thorn in the side of the Roman Empire. Iran was like uh, Persia was the last place that Rome could not conquer. Rome basically got all the way to there, and then they continued to fight back and forth for hundreds of years. And the Persian Empire, they weren't nearly as big as Rome was, but they basically said, nope, you can have this much land and you're not going to go any further. And they stopped the Roman army. Um, and so the, for, for hundreds of years, they had been mortal enemies. So the, the Persian people were probably not all that intimately familiar with a small sect over here in this side in the Roman Empire. And so you have these, 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 these magi, these astronomers, these scientists coming and, and saying... You know, they're walking up to the king of another country and saying, uh, yeah, there's a king who's born in your place, and he's going to be king of your country, by the way, and we want to come visit him. That actually takes some guts, considering you're from the, you're from the empire that has stopped the Roman Empire. And so you, when, when you read this and you see what's going on here, it's, it's interesting that they have come to Herod, who in all reality should have been like their mortal enemy, and probably had sent forces at some point, had seen some forces fight against their country, um, but obviously they were not part of that. So they come and they talk to Herod. Now, traditionally, if you read, you know, going back to my childhoods, I read the King James and stuff. They were called wise men. Now, why is that? Because um, the tradition of them being kings. We talk about we three kings of Orient are and all that. It goes probably back to Psalm seventy-two and Isaiah sixty. Uh Psalm 72:10 and 11 says let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands present bring presents the kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts and let all kings bow down before him all nations serve him. Then we look at Isaiah 66 and it says a multitude of camels will cover you the young camels of Midian and Ephah and all those from Sheba will come and they will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. Those passages have always been taken to be messianic and they are um and so in the past, the, because of those passages, they were assigning those passages to the wise men. And so they called them either wise men or they called them kings based on the fulfillment of those prophecies. Now, my, my problem is, is tip, when we look at those passages from our perspective now, they're in an, they're actually talking about the Lord's second coming, I believe, personally, that they're talking about the Lord's second coming and the millennial reign and they 're not talking about his first incarnation um, it, it could be either way um, and then uh, the other the other uh, part there is that it says they're going to come from basically all these areas of the earth and it's very clear that these these magi came from the East which is Persian area they 're not coming from Sheba with Sheba which is down here or I 'm sorry it's actually down here so they're not coming from there so it doesn't really fit with this picture of the wise men and magi. Okay, that's the historical background of what was going on to there. Um, basically, you have respected men from Rome's enemy coming to a foreign ruler and telling him that they're looking for the king of the people that he's the king of. Now, in most cases, if that happened, you would probably be put to death. You can turn it back off the slide now. Um, So what do we see by this? Because I think there's a bigger point that's being made here. Remember I said Matthew is the one that points this out. What do we know about Matthew? Matthew is writing to Jewish people. He's not writing to Gentiles. He is writing to his own people to convince them that Jesus Christ is their Messiah, the King of the Jews. Now in this context then, why didn't he bring up the shepherds? The shepherds were Jewish. They were in a field. They're the first ones, according to Luke chapter 2. If you look at Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 16, we have the familiar story of Jesus, of, of the angels coming to the shepherds, and the shepherds looking up, and what do they say? They were sore afraid, and they went and found the baby lying in a manger and they worshipped him. Those were Jewish shepherds, but Matthew doesn't start with them. He starts with these Persian non-Jew Gentiles who were probably practicing some sort of, I'm not going to say sorcery, but it was definitely something that in the Old Testament was forbidden by practicing by God's people, astrology, and yet they're the first ones to come and worship Jesus. Now, why would, why would that be the starting point? It's because I believe that while Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, to convince them that Jesus is the promised Messiah King, He bookends Christ's life with non-Jewish worshipers and the command to reach all people groups. How does Matthew twenty-eight nineteen and 20 end? Those are the last two verses in Matthew, and it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. So here we have in Matthew, a Jew writing to Jews, tried to convince them that this Jewish man, God-man, is the Messiah. He bookends Christ's life with non-Jews coming to Christ. The point is that Jesus, the first truth we see here, is that Jesus is to be worshipped, not just by Jews, but by all nations of the world. And right away, at the very beginning... All of us, most of us in here, there may be a few that have Jewish blood, but for most of us, we're coming at this, when we read this, from a non-Jewish perspective. And if he had said, if we had only stories of just Jewish people coming to Jesus, it would be easy to read this and say, well, where am I in this picture? What's there for me? But right away at the beginning, Matthew is saying... Jesus Christ is accessible and can be worshipped, and God is drawing people from all around the world to worship this Messiah that is born in Bethlehem. And so the birth of Jesus Christ is not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles, it's for the entire world to be able to come together and worship at the feet of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And what a powerful lesson that is for us as we look at this story. To think that these men who were not of God's chosen people, who were just these outsiders from a totally different part of the world, and yet God found them and said, I'm going to bring you to worship my son, Jesus Christ. And you're going to be the first ones to give him the most humanly amazing gifts that you could possibly give to someone. The only, I, I, Gunner and I just got through reading a book by David Platt called Radical Together. And a couple of our Bible studies, by the way, are going to be studying uh, the other version of that called Radical starting in January. And he says in there that the only possible vision for the church of Jesus Christ is to make known the glory of God in all nations. You see, Jesus Christ is not just about reaching a few people or one group or one race, or one culture. He's about reaching every single person throughout the world, every culture group, every racial background, with the knowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah, and the only way to a relationship with God the Father. So we go on here, and now the wise, the, the, the Magi are there with Herod, and it goes on in verse 3, and it says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. Now, this... uh, When you see here and it says, uh, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. That's a little... That's kind of like uh, a really understated word there. To say the least... Herod was terrified. If you had all of a sudden people show up on your doorstep and you're the, let's say, you know, we had a King. We don't, but you're the King of the United States. Okay. You can tell people to do whatever you want them to do. And all of a sudden you get some people from like central African Republic that show up and knock on the white house door and say, Hey, King Ben. Um, yeah, there's a King that's born in South Dakota, we think somewhere. And, uh, yeah, he's going to take over your throne. So, um, yeah, we want to go worship him. Yeah, that would probably not make you feel real good. It would probably scare you to death because that king could have a faction that could rise up against you if you're, if you're real, one of those guys. Remember, we already said Herod is, he doesn't he's scared that somebody's going to take over his throne. So here come these magi, and he, and, and, and he was troubled. He was terrified that they were right. So then, uh, what's their question here? They, they ask, you know, they're asking where he's going to be born at. So then we meet a couple other people here. He calls in the chief priest. Now, the chief priests were the, the head of the 24 main priestly orders that were centered in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas uh, of, of Israel. And so each of those 24 priests made up this group of chief priests. And Herod called all those guys in because they're supposed to know they're supposed to know what's going on religiously in the nation of Israel. So he calls all those people in, and 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 it's obvious here they understand they're asking about the Messiah. So he also calls in another group. He says uh, he gathered together the chief priests and the scribes. Now scribes were the ones who would trans they would just basically write the old they would take the Hebrew scripture, the old testament, and they would just Copy it over and over and over and over. And there's a reason why we can trust what's in the Old Testament, because they were very thorough at their job. They would, if one word was wrong, that page would get destroyed. Um, a new page would get handwritten. I mean, this was very tedious work. Well, what happened was over the centuries, as they became the keepers of God's Word, because they were writing it, they also became very knowledgeable as to what that Word said. And so they were looked at as being being like the legal experts, the, the people that you could go to and get a kind of a legal opinion on what God's law, what the Old Testament Scriptures had to say about any matter. And so they were called in, along with the chief priests, um, because the chief priest' role was, the priest's role was different remember the priests were there to intervene on behalf of God to man so they weren't copying scripture all day obviously they were reading it to the people in the form of worship but but their their role was was different than that of the scribes and so you had these two groups in there and and it's interesting to me that they actually know the right passages they know what's going on Um. He gathered together all the chief priests and scribes and inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born, and there was no hesitation. They told, they said exactly where it was at, Bethlehem of Judea. Now, how did they know that? Because here's the thing, and, and Gunner's already pointed this out, and and the whole what we're going to see over and over in Matthew, more almost more than any other gospel, is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and so here. They're saying, in Bethlehem of Judea, and then they actually quote the passage. They quote from Micah 5.2 and say, and, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth the ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, what's interesting here is that Matthew, is uh, he, he's a smart man, and he had the option to um, to just quote, he could have been quoting Hebrew, but it doesn't really totally match up with the Hebrew in Micah 5-2. He could have also been quoting the Septuagint, which was the Greek accepted translation of the day of the Hebrew Scriptures. He also does not quote the Septuagint there. Um, Micah, uh, Micah, Matthew, most of the time in Matthew, Matthew is basically just translating the Hebrew on his own. So, he's a smart man. He was a tax collector for the Romans. He's not dumb. And so, he's, he's He's translating it as he goes, and it's interesting that... Let's read Micah 5, two because there's a little bit of a difference. Micah 5, two actually says this. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And he doesn't quote that last part. He says, the way it's written is that Judah, you're too small, you're the smallest of the clans, but God's going to use you anyway. Matthew inserts his own little kind of what I believe is like a parenthetical expression. It's almost the Jewish rabbis have a, have a way of, uh, in, in, in the Midrash, and in the, it, uh, it's basically a commentary on the text. And he kind of inserts it here, and he says, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. And he's basically, this is kind of Matthew's way of pointing out that that all the way back in the Old Testament, that what they were saying was, even though Judah is small, that out of that small tribe is going to come the promised Messiah. And that even though Bethlehem has no significance among cities, that out of that city is going to come the Messiah. And so he puts an emphasis on that fact. Pointing out that that in order to be truly the Messiah, he has to be born in the city of Bethlehem, a tiny, no-name city, in uh, in a in a in a in a, uh, uh, in, in, in a um, um a, a, a clan in a Jewish clan that is the not the most significant one, even though it is the, the, one of the large ones. So he uh, so he does that, and um, and all. All the pre-Christian Jews, as you can see here, they took this as being messianic. They knew that the Messiah, that this was pointing towards the Messiah. Um, and so, so we have that. And it's interesting to me that what's happening here is that once again, Matthew's throwing in as much as he can to show that Jesus is the Messiah by the fact that he fulfilled all the prophecies. If you read through the Old Testament, there is nothing that was promised about the Messiah that Jesus did not fulfill. And so when you look, we don't have to just accept the fact that Jesus says I'm the Messiah or anything else. Matthew puts, puts proof after proof after proof by quoting, he quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer with one reason, because he is trying to tell his fellow countrymen Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And when you look at these Old Testament passages here, every single one of them is pointing towards that fact. And so we see fulfilled prophecy here. It's interesting, though, that Matthew goes a little further, and, and they, he ties together another verse here um, through the words that the chief priests and scribes are saying. And he, 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 that last part is not from Micah. He says, For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And I think what here Matthew's pointing out that Jesus the type of ruler and leader Jesus was, would be. Because what's what were they all looking for? They were all looking for a king who would replace Herod. They were looking for a king who would be the perfect basically the perfect David to sit on the throne and rule and reign forever. And and that was what they were looking for in a Messiah. But by showing this part, I think they, they misunderstood what the Messiah was really going to be. And so he quotes here from 2 Samuel 5.2. And in 2 Samuel 5.2, it says, Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be a ruler over Israel. By pulling in this direct quote to David... He is pulling in the fact that the Messiah would follow in David's line and be the perfect David to sit on the throne. And he's also showing that the perfect Messiah doesn't just come and kill all the enemies and sit on the throne, but he shepherds, he leads his people. What does a shepherd do? When we think about a, a leader, would we normally think of a shepherd? Probably not. Because a shepherd sits on the back hills with sheep, and sheep are not the most... I, I'm, not a, I'm not a shepherd, but I've read a book, and, um, there's a, and I stayed in a Holiday Inn one time. But um, there's a, uh, there, there, you know, I, there was a book written by a shepherd that pointed out that, and I can't remember the name of it, but in it, he, he talked about when the New Testament always compares, and when the Old Testament compares Jesus to a shepherd, what that really means. And, and as when a shepherd goes to his sheep, you, you don't have creatures that you can just tell what to do when they do it. You have to lead them. You have to sometimes pull them with that crook. You have to make them go where they're supposed to go because they don't always want to do it. And we're the same way. And Jesus doesn't come in as the ruling king and say, well, I'm just going to slaughter you because you're not doing it right. He leads us. He guides us tenderly. He protects us. When we read Psalm 23 and we, and we read the words that the Lord is my shepherd, it tells us the kind of God that we serve. A God who in his love and his mercy is tender and patient with his people who have failed him over and over and over. And that's the Messiah who was promised and had, had come, has come. So what do we see in this second part here? The second truth that I think we need to see here is that being religious is not the same as being a God follower or a God worshiper. Because what did we see here? We saw the best and brightest of the religious people in Israel who when they were asked the right question, they knew exactly what the answer was. They were right. They were exactly right. The Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. But you know what I also see in this? A bunch of indifference. Here you have people who were educated. They had spent their entire lives copying word for word the Holy Scriptures. They had spent their entire life (coughs) saying the liturgy over and over and over as they slaughtered animal after animal in offerings for the sins of the people. And yet when it came to the most important, significant event that should have made the difference not just for Israel, but for the entire world, these religious leaders gave every verbal right answer, but failed completely and missed out on worshiping God in Jesus Christ come in the flesh. And instead, these men who were not from God's chosen people, who were from another country, not even in the Roman Empire, they had the chance to put their eyes On baby Jesus, on their Messiah, on God in the flesh, and present him with offerings and bow down before him. Because when they heard the scripture, they believed it was true. And it's not enough just to know what the Bible says, it's not enough to just be able to quote the Bible verses. We have to actually go further than just religion and sitting in a pew and coming to church and saying the right words and saying the right prayers. And we have to go to a relationship where we live our lives in a way where we sacrifice ourselves to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's ironic that, to me, that the humble seekers were the ones who found Jesus. But the religious leaders who had been given all the information in the world, they were the ones who had the truth right there in front of them. And they chose not to believe it or act on it. And in the case of Herod, they, he even went so far as to det- try to destroy the Messiah who has come. It wasn't that he disbelieved in the Messiah. It's very clear from his actions, he did believe and he wanted to kill him. That, that's the height of unbelief. And, you know, I, I would like to believe that every person that sits in a church pew on Sunday mornings, everyone that comes to a church and sits in a chair is truly a believer in Jesus Christ, but we just know that's probably not the case. And for each one of us, we should read this and be convicted and be, search our own souls to know 100% for sure that we're not just going through the actions of religion every week, but that we truly have a relationship with God, through our, His Son Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to um, the the what happens next, we go on in verse nine here, and it says, "After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was." Now, I just want to focus on that one verse. It, it, there's been a lot of um, the star here is interesting. I didn't really talk about it before. And there you can read commentary after commentary and there's at least, I don't know, there was one commentary that listed like 10 different possible scenarios of astronomical occurrences that people have said, well, th- this happened in this year and so what they probably saw was this comet doing this and then this star aligning here and that's all well and good. I they're, honestly, you could spend your whole life trying to figure out what they saw. The bottom line is, though, whatever they saw, um, that even though there's a lot of different theories, ultimately they're pretty irrelevant to what God was trying to do here. He could have used a million different ways to get them there, but he chose to use a star and by the fact that in verse 9, the star originally, they pro- it's like they saw it, and they said, hey, it's over there, and this is marking the Messiah, and they followed it, but it didn't get them to the exact place. It got them to the region of Judea, and they were like, oh, okay, we're in the right place. Let's go find the king and talk to him. Surely he knows what's going on. Well, then the star, though, starts to move. Now, I don't care what way you're looking at the scientific evidence here. When the star moves enough that you can see it actually show you like the street address for where you're looking for, there's probably some supernatural intervention going on that has nothing to do with a scientific development. I, you know, like I said, there's a thousand different scenarios that could happen. But it seems pretty clear that God was behind whatever happened and he led them and directed them directly to where Jesus Christ was laying. Now, what what's the point of this? Why does he even bother to tell us how they found this house? Because I think there's a third truth that's being emphasized here, and that is that God utilizes the universe to make his son known and worshipped. God literally moved heaven and earth to bring however many, we, I know traditionally we think there were three, but whatever, it's probably more, from Persia, all the way over to their enemy's territory in Judea, all the way to probably a little nondescript house in the middle of nowhere in Bethlehem, or wherever they were at, and and, and bring them to his son, Jesus Christ. And if God's willing to do that at the very beginning of Jesus Christ's life, what is he willing to do today to bring people to know him? Is he willing to use you or me in our own little place at work to be able to say the right thing to draw someone to himself? Is he willing to take us out of our comfort zone and put us in another country to be able to see him work and be used to bring people to Jesus Christ? Is he willing to change governments so that people can have the opportunity to know Jesus Christ and to love him and worship him? He will move heaven and earth and control the universe to bring people to himself. And to me that's an awesome truth that God is always working to bring sinners to himself. He didn't stop that after he took the after he after Jesus Christ left the earth. God is still working today. And if we're willing to be used by him, he will use us in that work to bring others to know his son Jesus Christ. It's interesting that in Romans chapter 1 verses 19 through 20 that, that, um, that Paul points out the fact that creation is enough to make people responsible to their creator for whether they've accepted Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, it says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. If someone truly looks around and sees everything that God has done in the universe, it cannot leave them thinking, I'm the greatest thing that's ever been created. Because I can't make the sunrise, I can't make the sunset, I can't make the stars appear in the sky. But just by speaking them into existence, creation came about. And so God utilizes the universe to make Jesus Christ known. We go on in verse 10 and it says, "...when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and they worshipped him." Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the magi left for their own country by another way. Now, obviously, when you want to see, if you want to see the timing here, uh, Jesus' family was already living in a house. They were not still in the uh, in the in the um, um, in the manger. They were not still living in a barn. Um, and 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 also when we see what happens subsequent to this, where Herod tries to put to death all the kids two years old and under, it's pretty clear that Jesus was probably not a, a newborn at this time. He's probably you know somewhere between the age of maybe nine, ten months, and two years. Um, we don't know exactly, but they did come to a house, um, and we can tell that this takes place months or even a couple years after Christ's birth, um, and and it. And apparently, the Magi were actually fooled by Herod. They legitimately thought that Herod wanted to worship God. We know, because we have this hindsight to be able to read it in in the Bible, that that was not the case, and God warns them about that and sends them away a different way through a dream. Um, Obviously, the number of the gifts that is presented here is where we get the traditional idea of three wise men, but we honestly, there's no that's not said here at all how many uh, magi there actually were, but they do bring three gifts. Now, what is the significance of the gifts? Like I said, I think there's a reason why he why he points out, he tries to be very exact of, of what was brought. Um, I will say, I grew up and, and was taught, uh, even heard in sermons that traditionally um, gold means royalty, so they were recognizing... Jesus Christ is king. Uh, frankincense is, was a somehow a sign for divinity. I really don't really yet understand how that's supposed to signify that. And then uh, myrrh, because that was a traditionally embalming spice that was representing his death for all mankind. To be honest, I think that's really reading into more than what they understood. I be, those, all, the, the significance of each one of those gifts is that gold, just as now, is, is a very precious metal. It's, uh, it's a beautiful metal, and, and even then, it was significantly expensive. Uh, it was, you, if you were a king, you owned gold. You, you, the average person was not walking around with gold watches on their wrist. So um, it, it, was, it was a fine gift to give, and it was a gift that really only the richest people would be able to give away as a gift. Uh, frankincense is a glittering, odor-filled gum from the bark of several types of trees. It was treasured because of its odor, its, it, the, 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 the incense uh, significance of it. They would burn it, and it would give off this beautiful smell, but it was very expensive. You, the average person could not just go out and buy frankincense. Um, and then lastly was myrrh, and yes, it was used for an embalming spice, but, and it was only found in a tree in Arabia. That was the only place it could be gotten. So if you were transporting it all the way to Judea, and then, especially if it made it up into Spain or someplace, yeah, this was a very expensive spice. So, uh, only really they would only use it just for embalming. Uh, but they would also it was treasured just for the how expensive it was. So, what you have here is three extremely expensive gifts that would only have been presented to basically royalty because that was the only people you would have royalty giving them to royalty because they were so expensive, and that's exactly what happened here. These were apparently very wealthy. People in Persia, and when they brought these gifts, they were presenting them as to a royal person and and they were they recognized who he was and what I, and, and the last thing that we see here in this passage I believe the reason these gifts the, the reason the significance of these gifts were pointed out is that the fourth truth we need to see is that worshipping Jesus means joyfully ascribing authority and dignity to Christ with sacrificial gifts. What happened, what was the reaction when the star reappeared? There was joy. It said that when the star reappeared, it said they rejoiced exceedingly with joy. How often do you wake up on a Sunday morning and go, Yes, I know where Valley Baptist Church is. I can drive there and I get to sing with a hundred other people who know Jesus Christ and I get to worship God in, in, with all these other people who know Jesus. What an amazing opportunity that is. That's really what it was all about. They saw the star and said, Yes, you've shown it. We can go follow it and we can see our Messiah and we can worship him and we can be, bow down before him. That's the kind of attitude that all of us should approach worship with. We should have an attitude of joy that says there is nothing more exciting and more and, and, and more life-giving than worshiping our God. And so they come, a, a, worship is joyfully ascribing the authority and the dignity to Christ with sacrificial giving. Does the thought of worshiping Him bring us joy? The second thing we see is that the, notice the object of their worship here. They didn't come and look at each other and go, "Wow, we're pretty powerful kings. Maybe I should just kind of, kind of take a slight bow." No, they fell on the ground before this this little baby who wasn't he wasn't living in a palace. He wasn't living in in some rich person's house with a sign over the door that said "Future King of Israel." He he was living in just a simple peasant's house, most likely. I mean, Joseph was a carpenter. He's not living in a fancy mansion somewhere. And yet they come into this simple house. And these very rich men who probably did travel over with a whole entourage of camels and support people, because that's a long trip across a lot of desert. And they come across and they bring these amazing gifts and they bow down and they worship this little baby. And they and, and in Matthew's story, they're, they're the first one that Matthew points out and says, they got to worship the Messiah, the Son of God, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. The object of their worship wasn't Mary. Mary was mentioned. She was there, but they didn't bow down and worship Mary. They didn't bow down and worship Joseph. They bowed down and worshiped the little helpless baby who was probably crying and probably needed a diaper changed because they knew who he was and what he was going to do notice the gifts obviously we've already pointed them out they were expensive and they cost them something worship is not supposed to be easy even worshipping on sunday morning cost us something if nothing more than time it cost us something to say you know what there are certain things more important than than going out and, 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 and waste and, and, and going having fun my whole weekend. Not that worshiping is not fun, but the way that some people look at it, why would I go to church? I can go worship God sitting in a tree in the forest. I can go worship God sitting on a lake somewhere. And, okay, that's South Carolina for you. They, I had lots of my friends. They're out there fishing this morning right now, I'm sure. Or out with a, is it's hunting season in? I don't know. I think it ended already. But they'd be out in a tree stand somewhere on Sunday mornings. We give up things to worship God. That's on the small end. But when we give our offering and our tithes, that's our way of worshiping God. When we give our lives, and Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your holy and acceptable act of worship before God. All of those things cost us something. And so while we may not be able to bring in our modern day riches, gold and diamonds and silver and all of those things that we would love to have in our 401k, we can bring to God our lives. We can bring to God our families. We can bring to God our money. We can bring to God our possessions. And we can recognize that they all come from God anyway and that they're all his. And are we willing to do that? God took extraordinary measures to lead these men to Jesus, and he's still doing the same thing today. Another thing that um, I really like that David Platt said in his book, he said, we want to see God glorified by people everywhere because God wants to see himself glorified by people everywhere. What are we doing to be a part of, of helping other seekers, other wise men, other magi, other people who are coming want to know Jesus Christ, helping them find the Messiah. Am I joyfully and sacrificially worshiping God? They were willing to give away what was probably worth in our esti- in our modern day estimates millions. I mean, what is gold going for now? Thousands an ounce. I mean, they were willing to give away millions of dollars. <laughs> to worship God? What are we willing to sacrifice to worship Him? And then I want to ask a couple of questions. As we go into this new year, what are we as a church going to do to see God glorified by people right here in Valley Center and all around the world? And we can take that to an individual level and ask ourselves, what am I going to do this year as 2015 begins next week to help other people come and worship the Lord Jesus Christ along with us. And then finally, maybe you're here today, and you're in the same condition as the religious leaders. You might know what the Bible says. You might have even listened to it for years and years and years. But you've never stepped beyond religion and made it into a relationship with God in heaven through His Son, Jesus Christ. All we have to do is accept by faith that when he died on that cross, he died for you and for me and paid the price for all of our sins. And there's no way we can earn it. There's no way we can work for it. There's no way we can be good enough. But it's only through his blood and his death on the cross that we can have a relationship with the God of the universe. Today, you can move from being just a religious person to a true worshiper, Of Jesus Christ. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, today through your word, through the story of these wise men, these magi, you have shown us that you want all people to worship you. Lord, that you want people who don't know you, who are from other places, who may have never heard your name, to come and worship you. You want those who are religious, who might have known about you, but have never truly known you, to worship you. And Lord, may we today truly be worshipers of you. May we love you, may we sacrifice to know you better, and may ultimately it bring us the joy that only you can give, because it's you we place our trust and our confidence and our hope for the future. In Christ's name, amen.